Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Dr. David Jeffcoach on the show. Dr. Jeffcoach is a trauma and critical care surgeon who grew up in the Central Valley. After completing medical school at UC Davis, surgical residency in Tennessee, and a trauma fellowship at UCSF Fresno, he moved his family to Soto, Ethiopia, where he was the chair of surgery and general surgery resident uh, program director for four years at Soto Christian Hospital. His primary fields of interest are global surgery, surgical education, and trauma systems management. He returned to Fresno and is currently an assistant clinical professor of surgery at UCSF Fresno. This is a wide-ranging podcast where we cover a lot of topics, but all geared around medicine and global health. Please enjoy our conversation, and Baker will take us there. Where do you like to eat in Fresno? My favorite place to eat in Fresno, when we used to live here five years ago, my wife and I love to go to Sushi Day. Uh, right. Sushi Day is a little spot on Nice, and it's in a strip mall there, and there's a sushi spot in the back corner, and it's one of our favorite places to go eat. Okay, so that's like in, there's like a Save Mart right there and some stuff. Is that in that area? Taco Bell on the corner. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't realize there was a like, sushi uh, place there. There's a pizza place. I'm trying to remember what it's called. Pizza Factory is in that little strip mall also, but there's a uh, sushi spot. So we used to always go there if we had uh, a chance to have a quick date. We'd, we'd drive down the street and go to Sushi Day. That's one of our favorite spots. Okay. So as a doctor, what what do you... Red meat, is that a is that a thing that you're wary of? Or do you tend to go fish for health reasons or just because you like sushi? It's not health related at all. I like okay. red meat also. We just love... We've always enjoyed sushi. It's okay. Cooked or raw? Do you like the sashimi or do you like the more kind of like fried with different no. sauces? Raw. Prefer okay. raw. I mean, I, I usually try to avoid fried rolls, you know, the various ones that taste more like cheeseburgers than like sushi. So we usually get fresh rolls or sashimi or stuff like that. Wonderful. All right. So we're going to just jump into some questions about medical school and training. I have a lot of these. We'll start with kind of a softball one. If you met us. A smart college senior, not a high school senior, a college senior who is considering medical school, what advice would you give them and why? Are you talking philosophically about the profession or advice of how to best get into a medical school? Yeah, let's maybe take a step back and, and think more philosophical. It's a big commitment to become an MD. So what what kind of advice would you give them? I think, I mean, we I have a lot of these conversations with, with various folks just like this, undergrad students who are interested in medicine. And I, I, it's a great profession, and there's lots of different aspects. So there's very intense, long-houred tracks, and then there's things that aren't quite as intense. I usually tell folks, if you want to make money, do something else. There's a lot of easier ways to, to make money. There's a fun study looking at primary care doctors, so family practice, pediatrics, outpatient clinic type folks, and high school teachers. And if you track them over their career, the high school teacher makes more money. Uh, because you're delaying your income potential by about at a minimum seven years after undergrad. And so if you did a program to be a teacher, you did one year to get your teaching license or whatever it is, you get a six year head start, but you're avoiding when I graduated medical school, the average med student in the US had $240,000 of debt. 
And so that's like a house you don't live in. And so it's not a great profession for, for money. People make good money and I'm not complaining. I mean, it's, it's reasonable. So I, I think you have to make sure there's a lot of, and this is international, I think, too. In Ethiopia, the top scoring high school students unanimously go to med school. That's kind of, it's what you do culturally. If you have the firepower to do it, that's what you do. That's what's expected. And I think to a degree here, and especially in immigrant families, families that come in, it's a sign of success. Med school, attorneys, doctors, engineers, those kind of three things. But I think you have to really love it because it's, I'm a surgeon, I do trauma and critical care. And when I'm talking to medical students about specialties, I tell them if you have hobbies, <laughs> like any of them that you really love, you should you should really consider it strongly before doing surgery. There's a lot of other fields where you can have hobbies. You can be a competitive cyclist or you can, I don't know, be involved in a singing group. Surgery kind of really makes that exceptionally difficult. So I think you have to have your, your motives right. If you're doing it for money, you're going to be pretty miserable. And I've met people who have done that. And but if you're if you're passionate and you love the interface of people, especially people in crisis, it can be a really fulfilling job. So I, I think you just need to take a long, hard look in the mirror and have a sober account of what your interests are and what you want to do. And then make sure you do your math right in terms of how many years this is really going to take. Because your minimum four years of medical school, if you don't take time off for research, and then the fastest track to a residency is three years. A lot of them are five. I did seven. So I didn't finish my training until I was 34. And that's crazy, right? There's a lot of life that happens <laughs> from graduating college to 34. And I, I've seen people get in that track and you feel trapped because you're saddled with half a million dollars of debt. And all of a sudden you're realizing these are years for women that you're having kids. These are years for men that you're having kids and you're raising small children and you realize, wow, I'm, I'm going to be doing this for a really long time. And so I think it's I know people that always discourage people from going into medicine because they're like, we live in a litigious society and it's frustrating and you have all these external pressures of generating income and working with insurance companies. And, and those are all fatiguing. That's not that that's real. But I, I think there's a lot of a lot of joy that can be found in the track. So if I have a college kid, I would I would tell them to take a long, sober account of their life and see what they want to do over the next decade and a half. And if there's massive things besides medicine, there's a lot of other ways to, to have a career and be happy and, and support your family and stuff like that. So I saw a Gallup poll that said upwards of 67% of doctors regret their decision to pursue that particular career choice. Do you believe that? Yes. Okay. Why, why um, do you think they answer that way? For the reasons you already listed or others? I think, I mean, a lot of them are the reasons I already listed. There's a sense in training in it. And I always, so now I'm going to switch over to encouraging residents of whatever field. You have to firmly believe that you want to be there. It's really easy to feel trapped that now it's out of your control. The snowball's too big. It's rolling too fast. It's too heavy. I can't stop it. You have a lot of people, external family pressures, you know, you get a lot of kudos at Thanksgiving. Wow. You're training to be a gastroenterologist or whatever it is. People still a little bit look up to that in our society, although that's faded over the years. So you have, it's part of your identity. It's you've done a lot of work to get there. And then you have this financial snowball and all of a sudden you realize you just don't like it, but you don't feel like you can get off 
the track. And so you think, well, I'm just going to do it and then I'm going to finish and I'll pay off my debt and maybe later in life I'll change careers. But it people, massive change is challenging. I mean, we, we moved and we'll get to this, I'm sure, to Africa for four years, uprooting from the U.S. and getting rid of all of your stuff and saying goodbye to your families and changing to a job where, in our case, we didn't make any money. It takes a whole lot of effort to do that. And I think in the same way, it takes a whole lot of effort to move out of whatever you're doing. And what, and I feel like what I see, I'm trying to think of particularly miserable doctors. They've, the, the money thing is that their lifestyle has swelled to meet the income. And it's usually almost swelled beyond the income. And so they not only have themselves, but they may have a spouse, they may have children, they may have other people whose lifestyles is also dependent off that income. And you see doctors that are like, 75 and still working full time and you're like what what what's the deal and they're like i can't stop you know like i we would have to like move or downsize and my kids are i don't know i i think people i always told my wife that i had to be confident that i could quit my job and move to north dakota and wait tables if that's what we needed to do as a family and that i wasn't trapped but there's a lot of things that make you feel trapped and that I think can make people really depressed. And then other people just don't like it. They get in and they spend so much time charting and their day goes by really fast that they don't have those. I'm going to make some big stere- sweeping stereotypes, but a lot of people go into medicine because they really do like people and they felt like they were going to be able to connect with people. And then you get to a clinic day that has 30 people on the schedule with multiple double bookings. And then you have to like chart and bill for all those folks. And you can easily get to the end of your day. You've seen a lot of people, but you haven't really connected with any of them. And I think we feel that as consumers of healthcare, that you go to your appointment, you wait forever, and the doctor like speeds in, and 14 seconds later, they're out of the room. And you're like, oh, okay, I hope I hope it worked. <laughs> I hope they saw what they need to see. And, and I think that is a grind. And so I think there's commitments that can pin you in and make you feel trapped and that you don't have control over things anymore. There's a work culture that's very busy and exhausting. And then the last thing it's, I mean, in my field of trauma and surgery, it's, it's really emotionally exhausting too. We're seeing people that are really sick and they're dying all the time. Some people are wired. My wife jokes that I don't have emotions. I think she's partly correct. And I think that's partly beneficial in my line of work that I can go and see something devastating and a child die and then roll on to the next case, you know, cause you have to keep going and that can be really fatiguing. I think there's an, an under, it builds up over years. I think it contribute to doctors burning out saying, I wish I didn't do this, you know, or you see people and you can't help them because of the system. Like they don't have the resources to get what they need. You don't have the resources to give them what you need. And so it's like, it can feel like a constant letdown. So I'm, I think the Gallup poll is probably correct. It makes me sad, but there's a lot of literature now about doctor physician burnout. And that's also interesting. And the other, the other speech I give medical students and residents and undergrad students is there's like, there's no one there. There's no one behind the curtain. Both there's no Wizard of Oz that's pulling all these strings to make it bad, but there's also no one there to help you out. There's all the work-life balance. And 
what you can do to be healthier person so you can be a better doctor. But there's like no one there to make that happen. Like there's, yeah, we have the data, we know it's important, but big healthcare systems aren't doing it. And this whole work-life balance gets talked about a lot when I was coming through medical school. I finished at UC Davis in 2011. So I guess I'm a, a bit out now, but there's no balance. There isn't. There's, there's nothing. You work 80 hours a week as a resident. That's not balance. There's nothing balance about it. And so people can get depressed because they're hoping to make a magical work-life balance and they realize it's not attainable. And that that can be quite discouraging. So I, I tell people to not wish for work-life balance. There isn't one until you're done with training and then you can make it happen. But you have to be willing to make, you have to be willing to make less money, to be honest. Like, hey, I'm going to go get a part-time job. I'm still going to make more than the median household income in my state. I'm going to make less money, but I'm going to coach my kids games and be around. And I've seen people do that and they really find a good system that works, but that's the exception and not the rule, I think. Yeah. And that you kind of already hinted on the next thing I wanted to ask, which is kind of a very loaded question is why, why, do, why do medical schools not care about the health of their students? They... I think it's a, I mean, I, I love my medical school and I, I thought UC Davis is great <clears throat> and I don't want this to be like bad mouthing the school at all. But when I was in medical school, we had three students commit suicide during the four years I was there. That's no small amount. And it was devastating and they were doing their best to try to sort this out. They're all unique stories there. It wasn't like, oh, it's, it's this person that really struggles. No, they were all they came to school with their own history, right? And that's, I think, the most important part of those stories. But I, I think it's really challenging. So, so the question is, why don't they take care of their students? One, I don't know if we know how in general, what does that look like for each student? There's a lot of stuff on soul searching and finding your happiness. That's kind of strange and hard for most people to figure out how to do that. The volume of work to learn what you need to learn in this profession, it's hard to make that smaller. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask because it's really the grueling hours. I mean, I remember I went to a wedding and it was two doctors that were getting married. And so it was all their friends from medical school. And there was just lots of discussions about the amounts of Adderall that they were taking in order to function. I thought in my head, well, that seems strange that our medical professionals have to destroy their bodies essentially through lack of sleep and use of drugs in order to complete medical training and what, what that is. And I don't think, I mean, I, there's Adderall's rampant across college campuses in the whole U.S. I've never used it and made it through medical school. I figured out how, what worked for us. I was I happened to be married, which is different, but every Friday we did a date night and we canceled all plans. We missed weddings <laughs> to go out to dinner together but we did it for like four years straight. And we looked forward to like, my wife was going through grad school at the same time. She's a physician assistant and got a master's in public health. So we had very busy schedules, but we knew on Friday, it was just us that we were going to like go out to eat or find something to do, go for a walk, sit down, process our weeks. And so it took a lot of work to do that, but it definitely was important. There's a lot of, a lot of families have been broken on the altar of medical profession. And I've been to residencies where one that I interviewed at, it was until like very recently that they broke their streak of 100% divorce rate in their surgical <laughs> training program. 
It never had someone come in married and stay married for five years. That's terrible. <laughs> I didn't go there because it didn't, it wasn't part of my, so a thing that I think would help medical students is you have to figure out your value system and what are the core components of that, that you're not willing to budge on. And then what things are flexible and then what you don't care that, okay, whatever. And you have to really like cling to it because everything about your lifestyle is going to want to destroy that system. If your value system is family, let's pick something basic. Your time requirements are going to be insane. So you have to be pretty militant about figuring out date night on Friday night for a young couple without kids. Now we, we have kids and it's morphed into, a, we do family movie night every Friday night where we watch a movie, the kids get to pick it, we make popcorn and we eat tacos. That's what we do. And so I think if you figure out a value system and then work hard to protect the things that you're not willing to negotiate, and that's going to affect all the other things, but you have to be okay with that, right? Like you, there's this whole, <laughs> America's beautiful, but we feed ourselves this story of everyone can have their cake and eat it too. And, and my wife talks about this a lot. Like, yeah, you can be a high powered working professional woman and very satisfied in your job and manage to have four children and still be involved in like PTA. And, and the, it just like at a point you're like, no, you can't, you can't. And that's every profession, not just medicine. So I think you have to figure out which parts you're not willing to budge, figure out how to make those work and then be flexible with the rest. And I think that would do a lot for health of medical students. Just figuring out, okay, what do I need? I need to get out outside. I need to be in the outdoors. Okay, figure it out. Make a time one day a week. You can go to medical school and not study on a Saturday. It's totally possible. And you go outside and you go for a hike and you figure out how to recharge and then come back at it. Because you you become very ineffective when you're you're so burnt that you can't focus and you got to take Adderall to stay awake and keep reading and stuff. That'll that'll kill you. So, but long story short, I'm not sure we know how to take care of each other in terms of, I think in the pit, I think you have to figure out how to do it on your own. Institutionally, it becomes a lot more challenging because those value systems of all your students are probably quite different. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it's, I think it does. And I think it's some generally sage advice for how to think about your workplace and how to prioritize what's important to you. Last question on the, the topic of medical training. So if you were the dean of a medical school, what is one thing that you would want to remove from the curriculum and one thing that you would want to add or emphasize? That's an excellent question. So one thing I hear a lot from people is the lack of nutritional training that many bees receive in medical school. And that with a lot of the holistic health trends in our society, it would be beneficial if doctors had more nutritional training to give one example. Yeah, that's a good one. I think something that is important. So I don't know if you've, you've been exposed to the whole idea of mind-body medicine. There's a lot of stuff we do that has physiologic ramifications, mostly broad term stress. And a lot of patients that come in with problems, you can't really fix with a prescription or a scalpel. And, and I don't think we give, I would love to see more weight on mind-body medical ideas about how to manage yourself and your stress load or the trauma that you've experienced in a way that can bring about. So, so for example, with mind-body back pain, we have an epidemic of back pain in the United States. It's mostly people in their 30s and 40s and 50s. Oddly enough, people that are really old with terrible spines in their 70s aren't having a ton of back pain. 
And a lot of it is stress related. And if you look at MRIs of 100 people, 50 of them are going to have weird things on there. Not all of them are going to have back pain. Most of them aren't. But if you have back pain, you go get an MRI that finds something and you're having surgery on a disc that's bulging. And a lot of that is mind-body related. It's stress causing pain and it's real. It's not like just in your head. Your body has the ability to shut off blood supply to muscles and tissues and that elicits a lot of pain. And, and often it's, it's figuring that out rather than having surgery or taking narcotics or whatever you're trying to do to dull the pain. And your body's really trying to distract you from the bigger pain that's going on in your life. And it's very effective at doing that. And I, I don't think in the allopathic realm, we do that well, but I think it's a huge deal. And every country it manifests is different, whether it's gastritis, back pain, shoulder pain. We had a, a total body pain. We had a lot of jokes as med students. I have a patient comes in, they have like total body pain, like everything hurts. Okay. We think through, we're trying to think through pain syndromes and, but that's not always the right answer. And some of those pain syndromes are real. I'm not trying to like invalidate a lot of the stuff we do, but a lot of it is their own body is trying to protect them from something that's harder to, to deal with. Yeah. Um, I just recently read a really great book. Well, I didn't read it because it's kind of a workbook. It's called the pain management workbook. It's someone that runs pain management clinic at UCSF put it out. And it's really helpful in getting you to think about pain differently. Pain is something that's in your mind and that it's created in your mind. And that's not a way to invalidate people's experience necessarily, but a way to kind of reframe things. And one of the example that she gives, and this is was startling for me, is the 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 tale of the two nails. Have you heard of this? So the tale of the two nails involves two construction workers, one who jumped off a high ledge and then landed on a four inch nail and went through a shoe in extreme amount of pain, rushed him to the emergency room, discovered that the nail went right between the toes and didn't even touch him. There was no blood, no wound, nothing. And But he had pain. The pain was real, but it came from his mind. And then the other story is the story, a guy was shooting a nail gun, shot it, it accidentally went off and ricocheted off the wall and hit him in the, the face he thought it just glanced off him, but when he expressed some, or he went in for a dentist appointment, they discovered that the nail was actually inside of his jaw and he didn't realize it, but it, because he didn't know it was there, he did, wasn't actually feeling pain. And so the stories really illustrate that pain is something that's created in our mind and that we have some control over it. And I think I've dealt with some back pain in my life and when you're distracted and you're focused on something positive in your life, that feeling of pain can go away. But this whole opioid crisis that we have going on is because people just want fix, right? Right. Yeah. And I think that's my, my wife's actually here and she's, she's cheering from the other side of the living room right now that I'm talking about mind body medicine. But John Sarno was a guy in New York who wrote a lot about this like back in the 80s and it's fun I've read I've read some of his books that now we're we're realizing that a lot of it he was totally spot on like he was and he had a really good success rate he dealt with back pain but it's just we also have a culture that doesn't want any pain also living in a place like Africa where people are dealing with pain all the time they do a pretty great job at dealing with it whereas we as a, as a group, we don't want any pain. And when you go to the hospital, you're, ex you expect it to be pain-free. When I do surgery, everyone, almost everyone's under general anesthesia. When I do surgery in Africa, almost nobody's under general anesthesia. You can do it with the spinal, you can do it with local, you do it. 
because it's good for them. But people also go to the surgeon and think this isn't going to be like a vacation. I get to go to sleep after I inhale some drugs and then wake up perfect. That's not how they approach it. They're also really fast to like get out of bed. I mean, they get well really fast because they're like, yeah, it hurts, but I'm going to walk because I got to go home. So I, I think that whole field, if we did it nationally, we would, it would be good for everybody. Um, okay. We're going to pivot to Africa now. So okay. I've got a, a couple questions about medicine in Africa, but, and I, I don't like saying Africa because that's dumb. So like I, I've only been, I've been to the continent of Africa once, but I was in Tunisia and that's a very different place than Ethiopia and a very different place from the Congo and a very different place from South Africa. So I don't want to say, this is the last time I say Africa from now on, I will say Ethiopia. So Ethiopia I have some questions. That. Say that again. Ethiopia as a country will appreciate that. Yes. So. so, but let's, before we get into specific questions, why don't you just kind of give us the kind of general synopsis of how you found yourself there? So we both went into medicine, my wife and I together, really interested in, in global health and international work. And then fast forward, we went to UC Davis. So four years there, five years of training, two more years of a trauma critical care fellowship, tired, in debt, and no longer interested in and going and we had three kids along the way but we really that's why we did all this crazy training it's not i never wanted to be a doctor growing up it wasn't until the very end of undergrad that i had this epiphany to change routes entirely and go into medicine but we i wanted to at least go see a, a program so there's i was with the pan-african academy of christian surgeons it's a surgical training program that started 25 years ago now maybe 26 and there was a surgeon in west africa in gabon who was working all day and thought, <clears throat> what am I doing? Was this really moving the needle? And and he felt passionate about starting to train surgeons. That's blown into now 23 training programs across, oh, I don't even know, probably 15 different countries in, in Africa. Sorry to use Africa, but in this sense, it's it's all of them. Using so we it correctly. Out, yeah, we went out to Ethiopia. I'd heard about that site for quite a while and they're historically have always had a hard time recruiting surgeons to come help out. And so we went for a month in 2017 and that kind of reignited our passion for working overseas and working in that environment. So we came back, I had gotten a job to stay on at Fresno, UCSF Fresno, downtown at CRMC. And I went in and told my boss that we're moving to Africa and I had not been there very long. And uh, we had a good talk about it. And uh, he's a great guy and was supportive and was like, okay, if that's what you're going to do. And so we moved over there in February of 2019 with our whole family. And so I ran a general surgery training program at our hospital in Southern Ethiopia. So the whole, the whole mantra is to train African surgeons for Africa using that across all the PACS programs. So most of our residents were Ethiopian. I did train a guy from Congo, from Eastern Congo, DRC. He's from Goma. He just graduated this last year and is back at Heal Africa in a very challenging place. And so we, that's how, that's how we got there. We had met folks with PACS, the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons at a global health conference back in Kentucky when I was a med student and then stayed in contact through residency. And then, and then we came on board full time. So, okay. So let's jump into some questions. So when you encountered more traditional forms of medicine in Africa that maybe interacted or made what you were bringing from your Western training more complicated, how did you engage with those? So it's, the programs is a very, it's a low resource setting. So to just paint the picture, we're a 150 bed hospital, six hours from the capital. 
Power goes out all the time. Water, we do pretty well with water. Equipment, we try to buy everything in country. Some stuff we import from overseas. But it's not like a bush hospital. Like, hey, I'm going to teach you how to do two or three surgeries. You're going to go out and do C-sections, appendectomies, and and butt pus. Good luck. Here's your scalpel. Have fun. We're, we're doing pretty state-of-the-art stuff. And so our residents, when they graduate, they sit for the Ethiopian boards and they sit for their COSEXA boards, which is a college of surgeons of East, South and Central Africa. Now companies, 14 different countries. And then we're accredited by Loma Linda University in the United States down in Southern California. So it's very much high. I mean, they're required to know all the same stuff I was when I finished my training. So it's like really high level training. And then we go, now let's pivot back to the low resource context. There's a lot of traditional medicine in Ethiopia. In our area, it's called the Wogesha. Wogesha is a traditional healer. They'll set bones. They'll do massage, salve, burning things. And I don't, I've never met one. I've never gone and worked with them. I've just seen the consequences of the bad outcomes. Really sad. I've amputated a lot of arms and legs because of splinting that was too tight that cut off blood supply to the extremity and they come in with a mummified dead arm and it's like a 12 year old kid and asking you how to fix it and you're like that ship has sailed there's no bringing this limb back there's a lot of if you're ill a lot of tonsil manipulation well they'll, they'll do like tonsillectomies with crude instruments and fingernails so i've had full hemorrhaging to death from from that and had a number of kids die at our hospital from console things gone wrong. And then there's a lot of burning. And so there's like topical ointments you can put on your skin that really cause it to burn. And I see this a lot with hemorrhoids where they'll put it on the hemorrhoid, it'll burn it down, but people come in with what's called anal stenosis. So their outflow tract is now scarred down to the size of a, a pencil and they're struggling to poop. So so those are like the negative consequences of traditional healing in my context. Then there's like all the others. Every time I got sick, all my Ethiopian friends would bring over teas and things and herbs and and I'd drink it up. I don't know. Who knows? I can't say it doesn't work. It smells delicious. Let's let's rock and roll. Some of them are strange and we'll laugh and be like, I don't know if I want to drink this one. So there is a lot of traditional stuff. Hard to tell if it's validated, if it works, right? There's it's a different system. There's no money. There's no big pharma pushing things. And I think there's a lot of traditional stuff that probably works great, but no one's going to make a dime if you prove it. So it doesn't get proven. But then there's the other things like problems that have gone awry with the traditional healers that really cause major damage. So we, we try to do a lot of education to the community about, about that. Like, yeah, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but if you have an orthopedic injury you're probably going to want to have it taken care of by an orthopedic surgeon. Yeah. Not just do a bunch of splinting and massage for six weeks until it's really a mess and then try to come in and have it fixed. Can you tell a story of one of your students that you worked with, maybe their background and what they gained through your program? Yeah. So that's my favorite part of the job. I'm working with Ethiopian men and women we have very challenging stories and very challenging backgrounds. One, I'll, I'll pick on one of my residents, Dr. Ayenu. He's a fourth year resident now. He grew up in the Southern Ethiopia in a very poor area and he made it. He has a lot of everyone, well, not everyone. Families are very large in Ethiopia. So seven, eight siblings is very normal part for the course. So Ayenu has a lot of siblings. Felt like he wanted to be a doctor. He was, he's super smart. And so he went and went to medical school. And when you finish, 
you, this has changed now, but in his time, you had to do like civil service time. So you, when you finished med school, you had to go as like a general practitioner and you either had to do two years in a hard spot or four years in like the capital, you know? So if you're in a harder spot, it went faster. If you're in a easier spot, like a large city, it was longer time. And he was assigned to the capital in Addis Ababa, which is like very coveted. And he felt like he was, he felt calling to go work in a place called Moyali, which is in the south part of the country, right on the border with Kenya. It's very hostile. There's a lot of conflict there. It's kind of where Somalia and Ethiopia and Kenya converge. There's a lot of kind of militant Islamic stuff there. And he went to the minister of health office and said, I want to be restationed to Moyali. And they're like, what? So he went down and there were some major tribal conflicts that everyone in the hospital evacuated. And he and his two buddies were the only people left. And they acted as nurse, secretary, lab person, doctor, surgeon, everything. He was also, he received a scholarship through the Washington Mandela program. So there was a, it's a partnership with African, find young African leaders and then sending them to Philadelphia, I think, to UPenn or something for a summer to do leadership training. So he already came out to the U.S. And and I asked him, I said, how, how many Ethiopians actually go back after they, they get into the U.S.? And he said, not just Ethiopia, but a lot of people kind of evaporate into the fabric of America when they get a chance to get here. And, and I totally understand it. I'm not trying to throw stones. But he wanted to go back because he really feels called to his people in his country. And so... He came back. He also did a lot of HIV AIDS work before I before he came to our program. So now he's a fourth year resident, really interested in trauma surgery, a joy to work with, beautiful mind. And I'm I laugh when I met him. I said, we just have to train this guy to operate and then kick him out there. And then one day I'll get to read about him in Time magazine. He'll mm-hmm. he'll be somewhere very hard, working in a very challenging space because he loves people and he believes in in what he's doing. So that's that's one story of they're they're very bright folks. They're very resourceful, and they've. There's a lot of parts of Ayanu's story that are very hard and heartbreaking about his childhood, growing up, and what he's been through. But it's it's so fun to teach him to operate. And and in our context, it's kind of like the U.S. in the 1940s, where doctors are a big deal. And back in the day in the U.S., the doctor was you'd have one or two doctors in a small town, and they were a big. They were leaders, whether they wanted to be or not. And Afri- Ethiopia is still that way, especially as a surgeon. These men and women will be leaders. And so that's what I always talk about when I interview them. I'm looking for people with leadership potential because I know I always joke that I'm one random white dude in Southern Ethiopia, and I'm not going to make a big difference, but they can. They can go on and they can change their country. They can change the healthcare setting in Ethiopia. They can hopefully start trauma systems and get pre-hospital care. There's no such thing as like an EMT that goes and scoops you up off the road in Ethiopia. 94% of our patients are brought in by private vehicle. There's no one to call. You can't like call 911 and get an ambulance that's not there. But one day it could be. And and these are the folks that can make that happen. So we train two a year. It's a five-year program. So we have 10 general surgery residents. And I could go through and tell you tons of, they're so impressive. They're just really impressive folks. Yeah. We'll we'll circle back to ways people can contribute in a little bit, but before we change topics, did you 
obviously you couldn't have anticipated that you would be in a war zone when you moved there. But what was the Tigray War? What was your relationship to that? How how did you experience that? Were you insulated from where from it from where you were? Yeah. So we are not. Well, it's it's a faith based hospital in southern Ethiopia, Soda Christian Hospital. But we we stayed insanely apolitical as we ought to, especially the expats there were guests in their their country. And so regardless of what we thought about it, it was, we were not, it still impacted every facet of our life. So if you, Ethiopia, we'll do like a really brief history lesson, was, it was an empire for like thousands of years, right? And and the empire passed on essentially through families with some variations of coups and various things until the 1970s, early 70s, there was a red wave, the communist revolution with the derg. So they ousted the empire or the emperor and took over. So it was communist from the 70s to the early 90s. And then it became, quote, a democracy again, or for the first time ever. So the U.S. actually played a role in helping the communist regime get overthrown. And the Tigrayan people became, they were the ones that really led that charge. And so they kind of ran politics for quite a while, 30 years. And then the new prime minister, Abiy Ahmed, who won the Nobel Peace Prize because he ended the war with And he was very kind of progressive out of the gate. And, and through time, the folks that historically have been in power for several decades kind of lost a lot of power. I mean, we're very much oversimplifying this system. I mean, that the conflicts date back thousands of years in Ethiopia. And so they weren't happy with how things are going. And they're up in the north. So we're in the south. They're in the north. They say we're going to become our own country of sorts. We're we're not going to follow this, the federal system, the government in Ethiopia. So that started, it was like in November of 2020 is when that really got kicked off. And it stayed in the north and kind of went back and forth. The federal forces would kind of take ground. And then the for uh, the rebels, I guess, the rebellion against the federal forces, which were mostly the, the TPLF, the Degree and People Liberation Front, TPLF, they would make ground. But it got, it really escalated in November of 2021. So we're far in the South, so no fighting near us. But we saw buses show up and load up with you know, 18-year-olds and send them to the north. And a lot of those families have never seen their kids again. And so it was impacting us in terms of our friends are Ethiopian. But then it escalated to the point where it looked like the TPLF had, had made a coalition with eight other, it was like eight different groups all agreed to fight against the federal army and the forces. And then they made it all the way to nearly right next to Addis Ababa, the capital. And the prime minister is on the news saying, arm yourselves to defend your homes. So in, in November of 2021, it looks like Addis was going to fall. That's the only international airport, our only way to get out of the country. So we actually evacuated. We had a friend who was in charge of evacuating the UN. So he works for like a, a quasi-military group that goes into hostile places and pulls out organizations. And so he called and said, today is your day. You need to go. It looks like if you don't go, you may never be able to get out of this country. And so we flew to Kenya and we were there house house couch surfing for three weeks. And we thought we'd just go back to Ethiopia, but it stayed pretty rough. And so we had told our kids we'd do Christmas at our house or with their grandparents. And so in December, we flew back to the U.S. And then we returned to Ethiopia in January where things cooled off a little bit. Now there's a ceasefire between the TPLF and the government, but there's still a lot of 
there's a lot going on that's not in the news in Ethiopia. The other groups, there was a group of eight different groups. The other ones didn't sign that. And they're still not happy. They're still interested in, in seeing the, the government be toppled and to have their own areas where they either make their own countries or do their own thing. So we weren't in the fighting, but it was touch and go. If you live there our whole four years, you have to call ahead if you're going to travel anywhere to make sure your road you hope to take is open. And we changed a lot of plans of how we drove places because it was too unstable to drive through certain areas. There's been a lot of tribal violence in the last four years that's been really sad and a lot of internally displaced people. So our town has grown significantly of people that are from that tribe, the Walaita people, but they may not have lived there for 40, 50 years, but they have to leave the other part of Ethiopia because that tribe's no longer hostile. They're becoming hostile to other people in their region. So we were not ever in the conflict zone, but it was a massive presence looming over our time. Okay. We're pivoting here a little bit from something serious like a civil war to overrated versus underrated, where I'm going to throw a bunch of things at you and you tell me whether you think they're over or underrated. We'll start with a softball, me and Ed's pizza. Underrated. Me and Ed's pizza is amazing. They have the hot Hawaiian and you got to order it and it has the jalapenos. So hot, I don't love jalapenos. Mm-hmm. So I get a hot Hawaiian, hold the hot. And okay. it's an amazing pizza. I actually went and bought one when we got back to the U.S. Okay, next one. Orthopedics implants on their that impact on medicine. Appropriately rated, too expensive. Too so expensive. that into I mean, implants are crazy. Our hospital is the first place to do implants in all of Ethiopia. I believe I have that correct. So we do rotting femurs, we do hip replacements, knees, elbows, all kinds of stuff. And it's amazing the impact it can have on people. Take people that can't walk, make them walk, and that's you can't underrate or underrate that for sure, but it's a very, very expensive industry. And so that's the challenge. It's hard to scale it in low resource places because of the cost. The cost is is just astronomical. And I don't believe it has to be that way. So implants, fantastic. Our current setup is way too expensive to make them. Next one, being coffee. Oh, it's, it's, it's amazing. And yeah, I don't, in the under overrated, everyone hypes it and the hype is, is true. So it properly is properly rated. It's properly rated. It's, it's really good. You know, that's the birthplace of coffee, as many people know, where it was first found and they they take it very seriously. And it's a big part of the day. The coffee ceremony is, is kind of, it's a big part of communal culture. So Ethiopian coffee, if you haven't had it, try to drink it and try to find somebody that knows how to make it because they do it a lot different than we, than we do in the U.S. So How in our house, so you only buy beans green, like you can't buy roasted beans. And mm-hmm. so you roast them yourself and you roast them. Usually you roast the amount that you're going to make for your guests. So they roast them in their house and then your house fills with smoke and then you grind it yourself and then you put it in a special teapot. So all the grounds are there and it's like black, like it is completely dark, dark coffee, and then you pour it out of the top and the way it's shaped, it doesn't let the the grounds flow out of the stem of the coffee pot. So it's, uh, and then you drink it in like a little espresso cup, kind of a really small coffee. Mm. They, they don't do big cups of coffee. They're small. They might drink a couple of them, but it's pretty good stuff. Okay. Next one. The work of Gabor Mate. Gabor Mate? Yes. I'm not familiar with Gabor Mate. 
Okay, we'll skip that one. Let's see. The MCATs as a measure of someone's potential as a physician. Overrated. It's just a cognitive exam. People that succeed really well are those that know how to memorize stuff really well. Memorizing stuff really well doesn't always translate into effective medical care. But but I, I think to get through medical school, you have to have at least some sort of capacity to synthesize large volumes of information. And I think that's kind of what the MCAT does. It's just to weed, weed people out. Okay. The, the advice some doctors give to avoid all elective surgeries if they're not medically necessary. That's good advice. I've never okay. had surgery and I hope to never have surgery. I do it for a living. I love it. And a lot of people are saved through it. But we, this is a broad statement, we, we do it too much in the United States. There's a, there's a paper, I wish I had this exact statistic, of how many people have had surgery within the year of dying. And it's, it's staggering. And so, yeah, if it's, if it's not necessary, and even in times, I mean, I find myself often, even with people that it is necessary, saying, is this how you want to go out? This is going to be huge. You don't have much time left. Is this how you want to spend it with a massive surgery? So I would say that's good advice. Okay. Next one, the TV show Grey's Anatomy. I think it's incredibly accurate, except for we're all much more attractive than those people are. So, <laughs> okay. uh, but it is, a, I think the, and you probably heard this, the culture of residency, at least my experience was more synonymous with Scrubs than Grey's Anatomy. Grey's Anatomy makes, I've not watched many, but it makes me laugh that everything's so dark. Their, set, their scene is so dark. The OR is so dark and it's everything in real life is flooded with light. But uh, Scrubs is more, was more similar to my training than Grey's Anatomy was. Okay. One of the staples of Ethiopian food, Tibbs. I think I'm saying that right. Yeah. Tibbs. Fantastic way to eat meat. We're looking at buying some goats here in the U.S. and we want to treat our neighbors to a big goat cookout and make a ton of Tibbs. Okay. What is it for people that don't know? Tibbs is a, that's a broad term. It's cutting meat up really small and frying it. So you can have goat, lamb, beef, all different types of meat, but it's small chunks of meat that are, that are fried with a bunch of different herbs and things. And they're, they're quite savory and delicious. There's different types of tibs. There's dry tibs and wet tibs. We call them shakala tibs where it comes out, it's dry and it's in a ceramic, little ceramic bowl with a fire still burning underneath it. That was probably one of my favorites is to order shakala tibs. So Okay. Next one. Patient empowerment in medical decision-making. Critical, but hard. So I think about it when I go to get my car fixed. I'm not a car guy. I know some basics about mechanics. Uh, It's hard for me to make that decision. If they're like, oh, we got three different things we can do for engine. I'm like, well, can you make it run right? Like, (laughs) I don't know. You're telling me stuff that I'm not capable of deciding on. So you move that parallel over to medicine. I think it is really important. We shouldn't just here it is. I think there's there's ramifications for each of the of the choices. In medicine, I always say there's no free lunch. There's not one medicine we can give that doesn't have possible negative consequences. There's not one. There's not one surgery with the with the same. So I think it's important that that paradigm is not an Ethiopian culture. And so I spend a lot of time talking to my residents and trainees about it and and figuring out how to educate the medical literacy literacy is very low, but I, I think it's, it's paramount. Um, but it is really hard. It's easy to, to act like let's empower people. But if you don't have the background of the medical literacy to even 
sift through it, you, you're just making a blind choice for the most part. And that's, that's hard. So yeah, I do my best to try to put all the pieces out on the table and let people pick and try to walk folks through that process the best I can. But yeah, it's, it's super important, but it is a challenge. Okay. Next one. Another Ethiopian food, Sambusa. Sambusa is good. That's like an Ethiopian hot pocket. So okay. Sambusa would be like a, a crusty bread and a kind of a crescent shape and you fill it with lentils would be common or like a type of bean. They're, they're good stuff. I like Sambusa's. I, 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 I struggle to, honestly, I, it seems like it's a samosa to me, like a different word for a samosa in some ways, maybe, yeah. maybe different. The, the wrapper of it is different or some, or something, but it seems similar. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would agree. Okay. Next one. Cost of living is a reason for physician shortages in California. Yes. So that you uh, think that's a big factor. I think that's true. I mean, you, so my wife's from Santa Barbara, right? We bought a house here in the Fresno area for $500,000. It's not special at all, but it's totally fine. This house in Santa Barbara would be like 1.2 or 1.5 million. So the hospitals there actually subsidize their doctors and give them like hospital-based home loans to get people to move there. Because yeah, you're a doctor and you might be able to make three, four, five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars $700,000 a year. But when like a track home is over a million bucks, that's challenging as opposed to going to Texas, Tennessee, somewhere else worth the same amount of money. You can live in a house that's much nicer. So I think cost of living is a hurdle for California. Yeah, for sure. For physicians. Um, the writing of Atul Gawande, specifically his book, The Checklist Manifesto, is that important for you as a surgeon? I read that quite a while ago. It's it's instituting processes in medicine, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm yeah, broad yeah, strokes. Yeah. Yeah. We do that, we do that stuff all the time. In Ethiopia, we worked on fine-tuning it for our contacts, but we do what's called a timeout before we make an incision on anybody. Is this the right person? Is this the right surgery? Is this the right leg that cuts down on a lot of error for sure. So yeah, that's, that's a part of my life and it's, it's brought up the standard of care anywhere that it's been used. Okay. We're going to pivot now to talking about Fresno, but also changes in medicine. Do you see that there being any areas where artificial intelligence like chat GBT could be uh, provide some kind of positive impact on medicine? That's a good question. So I'm, I'm doing research on surgical training in low resource settings. So I was part of the global surgical training challenge. It was this big challenge grant. Our team won in the end, which is pretty fun because then we have a lot more resources to keep working. And so we're actually using AI and our way of doing it. So it's a, it's a way to train people in laparoscopy, right? So cameras, little scopes, totally low resource set up models, a web-based training program, and then you upload your video to a cloud. So you do like personal review and then you do peer review. And so people that are using it can rate your videos and give you feedback that way. And we're actually using AI to see if we can train the computer to do the rating for us. So you don't have to wait for a peer review, it's instantaneous and you get adequate feedback. I was skeptical when, I, when we brought in this AI thing. I'm actually reading a manuscript of a paper we're planning to publish probably right after this this meeting with you. And it's been really cool. I mean, we, we've gotten it up to above 75% accuracy to be able to do this. And in, in the AI world, at least in this video analysis space, 
that's a really good number. You can be pretty confident that it's an accurate report that you're getting back. So long story short, yes, I think AI is going to flood medicine. I hope we as providers can be part of that because I definitely think it's going to, I mean, just watching us train our software to recognize instruments, recognize anatomy, and be able to give like economy of motion and discrete task analysis. I think in the training space, it'll definitely find a home. And I think in the diagnostic space, I mean, it needs, it needs tons of data, right? And I think of, I think radiology gets picked on a little bit too much. I think they're a bit nervous about what their job's going to look like, but we have millions of CAT scans and you, and that's like perfect for AI. And my, I'm not a computer scientist. I'm not an engineer at all, but you could feed it a ton of data and then teach it what you're looking for. And I bet it's going to be pretty stinking good at finding it. So yeah, it's going to, I don't know about chat GD or whatever it's called, the new chat bot that's getting all the GPT. Is that what, yep. it's, what is yep. it? It's going to really send like med school for a loop, you know, as people are writing papers with it and doing that kind of stuff. So I know that's going to happen, but uh, yeah, it'll, it'll be exciting. I've been, I've been blown away with AI, like as we're using it and making it better and better. It's, it's been sobering and exciting. It's cool. It's cool stuff. Yeah. yeah. Don't, yeah. And that's what I tell people. Don't do glass half empty with this. Just, just think about the potential. There's always limitations to everything, but I throw myself under the bus. I had someone reach out at the last minute to write a letter of recommendation and the chat bot helped me. I made some changes to what it spit back to me, but it's just like any other tool. You use it for the purposes you need and you discard the rest. Let's pivot to talking about Fresno though. So I'll read you some numbers real quick. The San Joaquin Valley has the lowest number of doctors, nurses, and nurse practitioners per 100,000 of any region in California. And then roughly 30% of all three of those categories are approaching retirement age. What do we do? That is a huge problem and totally spot on. And oftentimes it feels like even worse. For example, we lived in Fresno briefly before my wife needed a gynecologic surgery and we needed a surgeon. And it's like, wasn't anyone here? I think since then, some people have come into town, but we went to Sacramento and you're like, we're a city of 500,000 plus people and a greater area of much more. We we have a, a lot of challenges. One is the reputation of Fresno. We, we went on a walk today and I felt like I was in Montana. There's snow all over the mountains. It's green and beautiful. We're walking by horse, horse pastures and it's insane. And I go visit my brother-in-law in Denver and I feel like I'm just in like West Kansas. Like it's not, <laughs> Denver's, I'm not trying to bag on Denver, but I'm like, why wouldn't you want to live here? So that's one is I think the mindset of California. When people move into state from elsewhere. They're thinking of stereotypical things like the beach and San Francisco or whatever. And that's where people kind of gravitate towards. Whereas the Central Valley kind of has a reputation that's in some aspects undeserved, in some aspects deserved. We still have 110 degrees in the summer and our air still is rough. And if there's fires, it's even worse. So part of it is marketing of our area. Part of it is the culture of medicine in the Central Valley. So I grew up in Visalia. I'm a seventh generation Tulare County person. And everybody I know with a big problem goes somewhere else. Like, oh, my aunt's having breast surgery. She goes to like Santa Barbara and has surgery at the Samson Clinic. Oh, someone's having their colon surgery and they go up to Stanford. There's this perception that good care is not available here. And I think we need to change that because one, I don't think it's accurate. It depends on your community. I'm not going to say... If you're in Selma, you can get everything done there. No, that's just not the case. 
now. But in Fresno, we should be able to do that. And in my short tenure being involved in the Fresno community, I've seen it improve. I've seen surgeons come in and, and various folks. I'm going back to work. I start this next month at CRMC downtown as, as a trauma surgeon. So I think we need to build a recruit high-end people, market them well, and and convince people they don't have to leave town to get what they want done. And I think that would help because if we can keep our business, so this is something we deal with in Africa, and I'm saying that as a continent, every country, people leave for care. They leave to Dubai, they leave to India, they go to Europe, they go to North America, and they're losing billions of dollars that could stay in their system because people are exiting to go have their care. And I think we're, we're not that severe here, but we're a microcosm of that same problem. We have to create service lines and then market them well so people know that they can stay locally. And that's going to attract more doctors, more business. There's going to be more people to do it. But the bigger problem is just marketing the Central Valley and the trying to make Fresno as attractive as possible. Yeah. And I think people are really working hard to do that. That's a slow moving needle. Yeah. I don't want to close with a dark subject, but we have higher incidence of cancer, asthma, all sorts of chronic diseases where we live. And you've chosen to move back here and live here with your kids. How do you as a medical professional think about health in Fresno? That's a good question. This is home. This is where I grew up. I mean, I'm not, I've grown up by Celia. So just right down the road. I think for me personally, there's, there's something really gratifying about being part of finding solutions and making things better where you live. I've lived in other states in the U.S. I love other places. Lots of beautiful places to live. But I, I love. I know this community. I, I feel like I'm not a. I'm I'm not the expert on Fresno, but I, I know where people come from. I know I grew up with a lot of neighbors that were migrant farm workers. I know people that are farmers in the area. People that own businesses, and it's a unique place, and it's fun to be part of where you're from. This is this is home. I understand this area. So that's a big part of why we live here. The air quality is concerning, right? I have kids, like you said. We have beautiful air in Ethiopia. We're up at 6,500 feet on the side of a mountain. It was nice. We weren't in a bowl full of dust. And I think a lot of those numbers also reflect the makeup of Fresno. Fresno is a is a more indigent community. There's a lot of poverty in this area. Poverty always goes hand in hand with poor health and poor health outcomes. And so while those numbers are very true, they're probably not true for everybody here, if that makes sense. I'm a middle-class person and my kids have access to healthcare and they have access to education and they get to live a pretty healthy lifestyle because we can afford to buy nice food. That's not the case in Southwest Fresno, right? And so a lot of those numbers, I think, reflect the demographics of our community. And hopefully over time, we'll see that improve. I'd love to be part of the the solution in making Fresno a, a safer and healthier place. But yeah, I chose to come back. I'm happy to be here. I'm mostly excited that my wife, who's from Santa Barbara, asked to moving to Fresno because a lot of coastal communities don't think super highly of us us valley folks until they are walking out in the Sanger River bottom and she's saying this is the most beautiful place on earth i'm like yeah <laughs> it's it's the valley it has its yeah. it has its mother. so 
Yeah. Well, we ain't got no time for snobs. So let's close with book recommendations. What are two or three books you'd recommend to the audience that are important to you? That's a that's a good question. A book I just recently read was by Eric Metaxas. It's called Amazing Grace. It's a biography of William Wilberforce. I didn't know much about that. He was doing his work in like the 1870s and England and working hard. He was the guy that really helped spearhead abolishing the slave trade. And that was a really good book. And I, I think what impressed me was England was pretty terrible. <laughs> like, like it was the numbers that came out reading the book that like 50% of, or maybe it was 30% of women under 30 were prostitutes, right? Like this is a rough time in history in that country. And it was one guy and granted he got a lot of cool people surrounding him that were passionate that he like, he moved the needle of the planet. I mean, England was a, a mega world power with all of its colonies. And I'm not going to argue that that's a good thing, but he said, we should do the right thing, not the popular thing, not the financially reasonable thing. What's the right thing? And in his mind, it was treating everybody with dignity and respect, which necessitated the abolition of slavery. And I, I think it was relevant for today, even though it's several hundred years ago of thinking, what are we doing and how do we do the right thing? And here's a guy that tried and failed. I mean, he spent most of his political career failing. Slavery was abolished essentially on his deathbed, but it was encouraging. It kind of was a sobering book of what am I doing with my time? I'm only going to live, hopefully if I'm lucky, 70, 80 years and, and you can move the needle in that time. So that's, that's a book I read recently that I really enjoyed. Other broad strokes books, one of my favorite books. I was in a phase for a while where I liked reading Russian authors. These Brothers Karamazov, I think, is an excellent book. He has a, a great way of, of writing the human condition with its ugly parts and its beautiful parts. There's a line in that book, the true measure of a man can be seen by watching the way he treats those who matter least to him. And I think that's a really cool line. And I use it with my residents. How are you treating everybody you encounter, not just the people that matter a lot, not just your patient that's paying you for service, but, but everybody, I think there's another book by Tolstoy, I believe it's called resurrection that I thought was really good. It's like, it's about like Russian prisons, not that everyone needs to go out and read about Russian prisons, but it was another book. I really like books that talk about the human condition our our joys and our struggles. And when we fall short of our potential and when we succeed. And so there's a couple of books. Wonderful. Well, yeah. to close, how can people support some of the organizations that you are working with in Ethiopia if they want to contribute in some way? If you're interested in training African Surgeons for Africa, PAX <laughs> is wonderful. I just got back from Togo, yes, two days ago. I went and did a site visit for a new training site in Togo, which was amazing. And they are www.pax.net, P-A-A-C-S.net. We worked at Soto Christian Hospital. You can find that online at soto.org. It's S-O-D-D-O dot org. And yeah, those are those those are both awesome places. So if you're interested in what's going on in Southern Ethiopia, Soto Christian Hospital can be found online with a lot of ways to get involved from helping buy supplies, building projects. There's a whole litany of things. And then PAX is all over the continent, really trying to get into places that have very low access to surgical care. It's not hard to find on that continent, but we have programs in Niger, in Togo, Malawi, 
Burundi, Ethiopia, Kenya, Egypt, Tanzania, Madagascar. And they're, we're very involved with all the, the surgical societies there. So it's not just like, hey, we're going to export a Western idea. This is the right way to do it. No, it's it's bringing expertise along, alongside others who very are very eager to do high quality care. They just don't have the framework possibly in their in their setting to pull it off. So PAX is a really neat organization. Awesome. Uh, Fresno's best. Thanks for listening, folks. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's best. We'll see you next time.